So John chapter 3, if you would uh, turn there with me real quick. Gospel of John chapter 3, a familiar text, and then a text that contains probably the most famous verse in the Bible, the, the verse of greatest consequence uh, for all people in all circumstances. So John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, verily I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you do not hear its sound. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher and do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. If I, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God, thank you for the promise of your word. That those who believe, who wholly trust in Christ, have the gift of eternal life. Father, we are on powerful ground this morning in this text. I pray, God, that I would not be in the way of what is spoken. I pray that your word would be clarified by every word that is spoken. I pray that your spirit would guide me in this explanation. I pray that your spirit would open eyes and hearts and ears to hear truth perhaps for the first time. God, we desperately need to hear this truth. So allow our hearts to comprehend what it is to be born again. And may we desire that this morning. Perhaps for some for the first time. We pray these blessings because we desperately need them. In the glorious, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, I don't know if you have this experience or not. <clears throat> but as a pastor, I think sometimes as attenders of church on a regular basis, people may say to you, I know you're religious. Now, I hope you understand they don't mean that as a compliment. Okay? They mean that is kind of like you're one of those people. Okay? What they usually mean is I know you attend church, I know you avoid certain places, I know you don't use certain language, and you don't associate with certain kinds of people. You're a rule keeper. 
their assumption is that you, because you have such practices in your life, have a better shot at access to God than they do. Because you're an insider with God. That's the assumption. Because you try harder, you do more. That's the perception. Second assumption is, you assume that I, the outsider, don't have a chance with God because I go to places I should avoid, I use language that I should not use, and you can go on and on and on. There is an assumption that people have that if you go to the house of God, you, by, merit, by, by result of that activity, you gain favor with God. You get points. And if you don't, you don't have points, and you're in the process of losing points at every bad turn in your life. That's the mindset. Why is that true? I think that's true because all of us tend to be religious. Okay, I don't mean that as a compliment. When someone says to me, you're religious, I say, I am not religious. Okay? Why? Because we all have this tendency to think that standing with God is based on our effort or on our performance. Our moral standing gives me some type of favor with God. That's our natural thinking. I want you to take a test this morning. Because you may say, well, I don't think that way. Well, take this test. If you've had a bad day spiritually, okay, you start off your day with an argument with your wife. You yell at your kids. You kick the pet. Driving down the road, you send certain signals to people around you that are driving erratically or unsafely, and then a crisis comes into your life. I mean, a serious crisis. You get a call, perhaps, that your dad has been taken into the hospital and has a heart attack, but you've had a crappy day spiritually. At that moment, do you think you can reach out to God? with boldness, and find help in time of need? If your answer is no, you're religious, meaning you're just like me. Because religious, religious thinking tends to creep into all of our lives. We tend to think that we have standing with God because of the things that we do or don't do. And then some people think that they don't have standing with God or they're losing favor with God because they live in ways that are not acceptable to God. And they see themselves as outsiders. This text is about a man who is an insider. He's, a, he's an ultimate insider. And he comes to Jesus seeking favor. He's an insider who thinks that he has his act together and he comes to God and in this encounter with Jesus, Nicodemus at the end of the day is going to realize that he is in fact an outsider who thinks he's an insider. I don't know about you, but for me that's one of the saddest things that one can see. Someone who is religiously devoted to doing good, to going to church, to earning the approval of God, to rule keeping. Thinking that rule keeping... And self-righteousness is self-saving when, in fact, it is not. Okay, that's the context that we come into today. Nicodemus, verse 1 tells us, is a Pharisee. He's a devout follower of God who saw rule-making and rule-keeping as saving meaning that it could deliver him from the consequence of his mistakes. 
Secondly, he's a member of the ruling council, or what was called in the New Testament time period, the Sanhedrin. You remember that the Apostle Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. It is very likely that Nicodemus and the, and the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus when he was on the Sanhedrin, were members of the same group of people who demonstrated the same mindset prior to a life encounter with Christ. They thought that their goodness earned them favor with God. Jesus aims to shake that thinking off of Nicodemus and to free him from it. The key characteristic of a religious person is they believe that salvation is earned by self, not by dependence on God. And I want you to just to, to, to get that clear in your mind. To think that my works, my effort, forgives me and gets favor with God. Whereas biblical Christianity says that salvation is found in Christ alone apart from all of my effort. Which always falls short of what God demands and, and what God expects. So Nicodemus, in verse 2, comes to Jesus at night. And he makes a declaration. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. So that's Nick's observation. What he's going to do following that is he's going to ask two questions. So first an observation, and Jesus is going to respond to that. Then he's going to ask a question, Christ will respond. And then he's going to ask one last question, and Christ will respond. We're going to work our way through that flow of this text. So he comes at night making a declaration. A declaration, it is undeniable that God is at work in you. Now one of the questions you might have as you look at this text is, why does Nicodemus come at night when it's dark, okay? People will speculate in different ways. It, it's, it's very probable that Nicodemus is coming under the cover of dark. He doesn't want to stir up a lot of attention. He has an interest in who Jesus is, but the kind of the kicker in the conversation is that in chapter 2, when Jesus went into the temple, he turned over the tables in the temple and caused some people to not view him very favorably. But what Nicodemus can't shake is the fact that what you're doing, Jesus, is undeniably evidence of a relationship with God. You have an inside track with him. No one could do what you're doing if God wasn't with him. So in spite of the struggle about what happened in the temple days before, Nicodemus still seeks out Jesus, but he does it under the cover of dark. There won't be crowds. He won't draw a lot of attention. He, his Something in his heart has been awakened, exposed by the actions of Jesus. Okay, that's where Nicodemus stands. So he comes and he seeks him out. Now, one of the things that we know from chapter 2 is that when someone comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't have to interrogate. He doesn't have to ask questions to find out why they're there and what they're thinking, right? Right? Every time I talk to someone, they say, hey, Pastor, I'm struggling with something. I can't tell what they're thinking. I wish I could. It would make life so much easier, right, when you're raising your children. You're outside of the room and something happens, and you come in, and you're getting two explanations that are contrary to one another. They both can't be right. And you're saying, God, give me insight. Okay, when Nicodemus stands before Jesus, chapter 2 makes something clear. It says, while he was in Jerusalem, look at verse 23 of chapter 2. While Jesus was at Jerusalem for the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. 
meaning they, they felt a stirring to accept what was happening as true. But listen to what it says, and this is a sobering statement. They believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, presumably based on chapter 3, as the saving one, because he knew all people. 25, powerful. He did not need anyone. He did not need anyone's testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, notice the context. Out of that context of knowing what's in each person, what happens? Nicodemus comes to Jesus as an exemplar of those who had a broken heart. And Jesus knew. They were inclined to trust Christ, but their belief was simply based on what had happened. It wasn't belief in the person of Jesus. Okay? And you understand, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God personally. Religious people know about God. They know that God has standards and laws and rules, and they know that breaking those rules separates them from God. The problem, however, is that they believe the path back to God is through self-salvation, that I, I do enough good, I win back the favor of God, who is angry with me. And that is flawed thinking, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But I want to understand, when Nick comes, Jesus knows he's trying to aggrandize himself to Christ while not acknowledging his true need. And Jesus says, Nick, I know your heart. And as Jesus begins to speak to Nick, you see how I'm using Nick as an abbreviation, okay? It saves a little time, all right? What happens, okay? Three times Jesus is going to expose the true heart of Nicodemus. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. When you read through this text, you're going to learn how you need to approach people in, 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 in the discussion about their relationship with God. You need to be honest with people. Most people have a false understanding of their sinfulness. It's weak. They don't see themselves as lost without God. They see themselves as struggling saints trying to get the favor of God. That's where Nicodemus is. And Jesus cuts right to the quick. He goes into the realm of the spiritual, verse 3. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You do not have a relationship with God that endures through life and eternity. That's strong. Now, if you're Nicodemus, you're thinking to yourself, I'm a Pharisee. I mean, I'm an insider. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm on the ruling council, the most respected group amongst Jewish people who have held true to God's truth in spite of all the influence of the Greek Empire, which was called Hellenism. The Pharisees fought against the, the Greekanization of the world. The Hellenism of the world is a better way to say it. But they, they resisted the pagan tendencies of the Greek culture and held true and thought that they were the standard bearers. To him, Jesus says, Nick, you have a deficiency. You're needy. Your religion is deficient. Because what Nick thought is, I was born a Jew. I have standing. I live a decent life. Therefore, God owes me. 
He thought that he was an insider with God by virtue of his physical birth and his personal performance. Now, Jesus drops the bombshell, right? The term born again. You want to get in trouble out on the street? Wear a shirt that says, I've been... Okay? How many of you have that shirt? That's what I thought. Okay? There's a problem with that term, isn't there? That term is loaded with cultural significance. It's also loaded with spiritual truth. Most people see born-again people, which Jesus is saying is a necessity, okay? So it's not Tim Hoff this morning saying, if you've never been born again, you must be born again. Jesus is saying it is a divine necessity to have a relationship with God. Something in the heart needs to transpire, and it needs to be done by God, not you, okay? So that's the, that's the connection that's present here. Born-again people are seen as more emotionally needy. They're seen as more broken. They're seen as more emotionally unstable. Their needs are deeper. And certain kinds of people need that dramatic stuff. That's the cultural view of that term. It's also loaded with political weight today as well. That started with Jimmy Carter, okay, who was the first professing born-again believer in the modern era to become president. So it's, it's, it's a loaded term. The indication of Jesus is to Nick, this is shocking news to him that a man of this stature stands before God needy. And Jesus uses the idea of born again. And let me just give you a definition of what it is to be born again, Okay. To be born again means to be born another time, okay, or from above, implied then is by God. You need a work of God in your heart to have a relationship with Him. That's what Jesus is saying, to be born from above. Okay, so we, 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 we take it out of the cultural understanding and we realize that what it's talking about is the experience of an act of God upon my heart that takes out my heart of stone and gives me a heart that is sensitive to God. That's the idea. Okay, it is a miraculous work of God. And like physical birth, you have nothing to contribute to it. Which should cause all of us to say, Amen. Praise God. What Nicodemus needs is not to do something else. Nicodemus needs to surrender to God who will do something new in him. Okay, and what he's saying is, Nicodemus, you got all the religious credentials, but you lack what it is to have a relationship with God. You're an outsider, but you think you're an insider. And that's where all of us stand, folks. That's where I stand apart from Christ, in need. Well, here's Nicodemus's response to that. Look at verse 4. Natural response. Not, hey, can you tell me more about that? He is mystified and a little probably put off. How can someone be born when they are old? Completely natural understanding. He has no clue of what it is to have God expose and transform. He thinks merely on the, phys- on, the, on, on the physical plane. 
Why? Because religious people are into self-salvation. It's up to you. So if, if Jack Templeton is being good enough this week, Jack Templeton can talk to God. He has a relationship with God. But if Jack Templeton got upset with his wife this morning, and that's why she's not here with him today. <laughs> I just noticed she's not here. <laughs> then Jack may come to church, and, and you've all done this. You come to church feeling spiritually tired, lethargic, an outsider, when you're actually an insider. Okay? Because that's how religious we tend to be. So Jesus is saying, Nick, you need a new birth. Nick's like, look, how can you be warm when you're old? Can you, like, go back inside your mom? And that's just, Doug could do this a lot better than me, right? <laughs> how can you go back inside? <laughs> okay. Doug's not here, so I'm, I'm on safety. James isn't here either, so we can have a lot of fun, okay? Uh, we're going to act like born-again people today, all right? No. So, so Nick, he, he's mystified. He's just like, not like he, he states the obvious. That's impossible. Jesus' response would be, Nick, yeah, for you it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So verse 5. Jesus, at 5 through 8, this is the simple summary. New birth is a God thing. Okay, so what Nicodemus said, well, how can that happen? Then you don't understand Nicodemus. Salvation, change, rescue, forgiveness, regeneration is the work of God. That's why we should proclaim it boldly to people. I'm not telling people to get their life straightened out. I'm not saying to people, get your act together. I'm saying to them, understand that your life is messed up, that you are a sinner, and that God wants to invade your space through a work called redemption, regeneration, being born from above. A spiritual birth that follows your physical birth. Okay? That's what he's saying, and he's saying that work is a God thing. Nicodemus, you make no contribution to it, so all you're thinking of, how can that work? It's stupid. It's unnecessary. You make no contribution. Sit down, relax, and listen. Let God's word invade your life. Jesus gives his second response now to Nicodemus after that response. Verse 5, he says, very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Now, if you're, if you're literate in the Old Testament, most of us aren't as literate as we should be, but if you're literate in the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament talks about a, a new birth, a taking out the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. It talks about a washing of regeneration and a renewing by the Spirit of God. That's born-again terminology in the book of Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. So what is Jesus doing? He's ripping pages out of Nicodemus' textbook and he's throwing them at him. Look at this, Nicodemus. It's never been a man thing. It's always been a God thing. And for this we should give such gratitude and grace to God. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, unless it is done by God. So Paul will later say in Titus, he'll say this, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's Paul unpacking the born-again statement of Jesus. It's a supernatural work of God in the heart that is later expressed in the waters of baptism. So that baptism becomes a proclamation that I have been born 
by God from above. Okay, I'm not saved by the baptism. I'm saved by what the baptism says. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. All right, that's the change. And, and, and what, Nicodemus is, what, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need to be born of water and spirit. You need a work of God in your heart. Verses 6 and 7. Look at what he says. Jesus says, Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. Meaning that's the plain, Nick is like, yeah. <laughs> yes, first birth. By man. Right? Two people decide they're going to get together, they're going to do what they do, and they're going to have a baby. Okay? That's of the will of man. Wasn't that night? It was very euphemistic, right? For the young people. Okay? Okay? That's the way it's, it's human. Nicodemus is right on that plane, and Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, it is so much more than that. It is so much more glorious, so much more powerful, so much more life-changing than a simple human decision. Folks, how many decisions have you made in your life? Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm never going to do that again. Crap, I did it again. You know what I'm talking about? That's the story of my life. If it wasn't for God invading, transforming, and changing, I would never earn a place with God. I can't. I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, there's a natural realm. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Second half of verse 6. But Spirit gives birth to Spirit. When God the Spirit begins to move on a heart, what happens is inevitable. And it is life-changing. Okay? So that's what, that's what Nicodemus is saying. So let me say it to you in this way. Nicodemus and the homeless drunk have the same need. And that's the part that religious people refuse to accept. They want to feel different than someone that lost. And it is not until you see that you are that lost that you can experience God's grace. Okay? That's why you can take the gospel and go out to anyone. Anyone. And tell them there's hope. Because the change is not dependent upon their effort. It's dependent upon their surrender to the grace of God. So then verse 8. I hear you, by the way. <laughs> I don't know your name, but I hear you. Verse 8. Here's what, here, now Paul's going to go further, or Jesus is going to go further into the supernatural realm. He says, the wind in the natural realm blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it come from, comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit, which means it's supernatural and it's mysterious, meaning, Nicodemus, you can't fully explain it. So I can't fully, in words, tell you how the work of God happens because it is, in fact, not humanly de designed. It is God-designed. It is a divine work of a supernatural, all-powerful God in a broken heart. So I can't explain it. So it's like wind is what he's saying. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. I understand that we scientifically understand what the, you know, the, the, the sun heats up the earth and the air starts to rise. And, that, and I, I get all that, okay? What Jesus is talking about, the mystery of it. If my neighbor, Bryn Lee, called me and said, Hey, PT, did you see the wind blowing yesterday? I'd say, you're weird. 
I saw the leaves moving, and I knew the wind was blowing. And I didn't hear the wind. I heard its effect. Okay? So the Spirit and wind are the same. Listen to this. They're the same word in the Gospel of John. Same word. The wind of God is the power of God working through the Spirit of God. And when that work of God comes on someone's life, what happens is not humanly explainable, yet it is observable and powerful. Does that make sense? And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, that you've never had. Oh, you've got all your credentials, and when people look at you externally, they can see what a man can do, but it's not saving. Okay? Does that make sense? It's not saving. Now Nicodemus is destroyed. He's gone, I'm going to estimate numbers. He's gone from 20 plus words in response to 15 words, verse 9 to 4. You know what's happening? God is undoing Nicodemus. He is now, he's, he's just caught a shot in the chin of his religion. And he is unstable. What happens is, he looks at Jesus and says, how can this be from 20 to 15 to 4? Folks, something is beginning to happen in the heart of Nicodemus. His resistance is being obliterated by the power of Christ and the Word of God. And something's starting to change, like miraculously like wind. Nicodemus' response is that this is, uh, to quote a famous movie, inconceivable. Some of you saw the movie and some didn't. He, how can that be? Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you don't have to have human credentials. But you must, without exception, be born from above. That's what he's saying to him. And, and Jesus' response to Nicodemus is, this is powerful, watch. Nicodemus says, how can this be? Jesus responds with what you might call biting sarcasm or irony, one of the two. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, you are Israel's teacher. You're a Pharisee and you're a member of the Sanhedrin. You're God has tasked you with telling people the most important news that they could possibly ever hear. And you've delved into human things. You have not told them about a saving God who moves into the lives of rebellious people and delivers them from their rebellion and utterly and completely changes them. And, and I think Jesus is saying something like this. Nicodemus, how sad and how ironic that you, a teacher of Israel, don't understand what I'm saying. That, that's... That's the direction this moves in. He is ignorant of and resists the necessity of new birth. And I'll come to that in a moment. Verse 11. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know. Jesus is speaking out of infinite knowledge. And we testify about what we have seen, the glory of God in heaven. But still you people, now what does he do? He broadens out from Nicodemus to the whole religious organization of Israel at that time. Which will later demand the death of Christ because they can't take the message of grace. Okay? He says, you people, 
do not accept our testimony. Meaning, you on the face, you reject it. Because it proclaims hope to people that you have dismissed for their whole lives. You've counted people that are sinful, unworthy, not seeing that you are the same. Does that make sense? They had that whole religious community. Now, Jesus takes on the whole religious establishment and says, you're all a bunch of frauds. You've been blocking people from the grace of God, and you're teachers of Israel, but you don't know what you're saying. You don't have a clue about how God works and how beautiful His grace and salvation is because you are blocking people from it. You are blinded by your self-saving and your self-righteousness. And of these words of Christ, I want to say simply, stinging, strong, and gracious. Folks, I want to tell you something. The person that tells you the truth when you have a desperate terminal need does not hate you. Their aim is saving. And when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you don't have a clue, he means it to wake him up. And that is how for you that seek to share Christ, that is what should fire and drive all evangelism, is that I know my need. God changed my heart. He can change yours. And you can put it even better, if He could change mine. Argue from greater to lesser. If He could change me, He can change you. Can never get over what God did for you. So that your proclaiming is gracious, direct, confrontational, but loving. The gospel always wounds before it heals. It always stings before it sings. It always hurts before it helps. In this context, Jesus is making much of Nicodemus' sin so that he will see that he needs a Savior and that the Savior is not himself. It's Jesus. Now, Jesus is again going to rip a page out of Nicodemus' book from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And he's going to draw a comparison. I, want to, I, I don't have time to go into the, 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 the whole history of this. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you know there was a time when Israel had rebelled profoundly and repeatedly and hard-heartedly against the direction of God. God, in the Old Testament context, sends fiery serpents. That account that you remember... Uh, if, if you don't know, go back and look it up uh, on Bible Gateway or something, the account of the serpent on the pole, okay, and you'll see it. Now, here, here's what happens. The serpents bite and kill. As that begins to happen, the people begin to realize the depth of their sinfulness. They cry out to Moses, who is their mediator, their representative with God. Jesus is the greater Moses, okay? They cry out to Moses and say, Moses, help us. Moses goes to God and says, God, how can we bring deliverance? And God says to Moses, take a picture of the judgment and put it on a pole. Make a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole, lift it up, and make this simple proclamation. Rescue from the deserved wrath of God is found by looking in faith at the provision that God has made. It's that simple. Okay? So Moses raises that pole in faith thinking, It seems foolish, right? 
but he raises the pole, and everyone that looks in the pole, at the pole, at that serpent, which symbolizes the just judgment of God upon them, every person that looks at it in faith is saying, God, I understand that I deserve that. I deserve that for my rebellion. But in your grace, you are from me saving. Now, what's the difference? Okay, because here, here, here's what the text says. The text says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Okay? So in the serpent story, what happens? Those that look at the pole are physically healed. Lesser. By Moses. When I come to the New Testament, I guess I, now I really do feel like Doug. Okay? When I get to this side, what do I have? I have the cross. And everyone who believes in the raised Son of God is eternally saved. Not physically saved. It's a greater salvation, and Jesus is a greater Savior. Because on the cross, He bears the wrath of God. He comes in flesh because He is the symbol of my fallen humanity, though sinless. And on that cross, He bears the wrath of God. Here's what Jesus says. Everyone who looks to the cross believing that they deserve what happened there is freed from what happened there. That's simple gospel. To look at Christ believing that He is in fact my only hope with God for forgiveness of my rebellion and sin is saving. It's not physically saving. It's not about me having a good life now. It's about the eternal benefit of what Christ did. That's why we don't preach a prosperity and get health and wealth gospel. Because the death of Christ aims not to fix your life here. Even though it does. At many levels. His aim is to save you eternally. And he died on the cross to do just that. Verse 16 is the explanation of this whole account. So you have this Nicodemus story. By the end of verse 15, Nicodemus fades out, and now you have John, the writer of the gospel. I hope you can get this. 16 forward is John, the writer of the gospel, giving commentary or explanation about this account from Nicodemus. Okay? Does that make sense? So that's why John says, for, or for this reason, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes on, looks to Him in hope alone, singularly, will be saved. Folks, that is great news. And it's set in the context of a religious man who is in deep brokenness but doesn't know it. He's been exposed by Christ, and that causes John the Apostle to say, God so loved the world. The word so tells me how God loved the world. To what extent? To what extreme? And the text says, he loved the world without exception. God's love is exclusive. It's not for Israel only, which is what Nicodemus would have thought. It is for the world without qualification. That he gave, not sentiment from heaven, but action, substitution, Christ in our place on the cross, bearing the full consequence of my sin so that I could be free. Folks, do you understand that Jesus is not battering Nicodemus? He's singing a song of freedom to him. Nicodemus, if you let God 
Take your hands off the wheel. Let God take the wheel of your life. Let him transform your heart. Everything you think you have but don't, you actually will have in him. And it won't be dependent upon how you live tomorrow. And what happens? Now the life begins to live out of gratitude and joy. And all of a sudden, I become tolerable when I'm around people that need Christ. I'm no longer a Pharisee saying, I got my act together. I'm on the inside. Poor sucker, you're on the outside. That attitude is obliterated by this text. And it also obliterates Nicodemus. So then your question is, well, what happens to Nicodemus? We don't know. Sorry. No, actually, we do know a little bit. We know that in John chapter 7, Nicodemus is the one who is defending Jesus and saying he deserves a fair shake. Something changed. And at the end, when Christ is coming off the cross, it's Joseph and Nicodemus that come to prepare his body for a temporary burial. I don't know about you, But if I'm trying to gain favor with the Sanhedrin, and I'm a member of that group, and Paul the Apostle is part of that group, and the one that you guys just crucified, I go and give an honorable birth because I believed. That's not adding points to my game. Something changed. This conversation, honest, about the need for a work of God in the heart started breaking Nicodemus apart in terms of his religious person. He was, and this is what the gospel does, at first it will cause you to disintegrate, and then it will reintegrate. Okay, that's what regeneration is. It means I am broken apart, my facade, and then God by his grace gives me a new birth so that I am new not only externally, I keep rules. No, I'm changed internally, and that's why my life is different. My aim in life is not to keep rules. My aim in life is to glorify God because he loved me and gave himself for me. Does that make sense? The whole driver of life changes when you get the gospel. It makes me a forgiving husband. It makes, me a for, it makes someone a forgiving wife. It makes kids, if, 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 you, if you come to this at this level, son, you rebellion, I can't overlook it. But as I speak to you about it, I want you to know that your dad is also a rebel who needs the grace of God. I'm not condescending to you as if I get it all right. I don't, and I don't have to, and neither do you. There's hope in Christ for all of us. That's the gospel. One writer said this. He said, this text is threatening and thrilling. If you're religious, you probably hate me by now. Okay, all I'm going to say to you is, I didn't say it. That's what Jesus said. Okay, so take up your problems with him, okay? It's threatening if you, if you oh, I've been living a good life and, and I have God's favor and, and he, he, he loves the way I live, he loves the way I look and how I, how I take care of my family and I'm such a good employee and I'm this and this. You're not happy right now because Jesus said to Nicodemus, you got all that and I want you to put all that aside. That's why the apostle Paul, remember what Paul said? The other guy that was in the Sanhedrin, he said, I want to be found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own, not having self-salvation, but having a righteousness that comes from God. Watch this. It comes from God. It's alien. It's outside of me. It's not produced by me. It's not enhanced by me, and it doesn't need to be. The righteousness that God gives you in Jesus Christ is perfect, adequate, sufficient, 
and life-changing. That's why Paul said, you know what? He said, I count my old life, Sanhedrin, ruling council, Pharisee, rubbish. Rubbish. Folks, this is how you come to faith in Christ. You realize that all my attempts to earn the favor of God are crap. They're rubbish. They are to be discarded freely, like gladly, in exchange for the gospel of Christ, the good news of God. And here's, look, as we sing on Sunday mornings, if you know the gospel, I hope you find it thrilling. And if you don't know Jesus, and I mean this, if you, there is no beauty in what we sung this morning if you believe that salvation is dependent upon you. You might have sang the words, but it wasn't transformational. Okay? The reason we aim to sing songs that have solid gospel, biblical content is because it's thrilling. Okay? If you're visiting with us and you wonder, what's with these people? They look like born-againers. They are. Okay? But not culturally born-again. Please understand what I'm saying. People ask me, are you born again? I say, well, what do you mean by that? And I'll tell you if I am or not. Or if you just want me to tell you what I mean when I say I am, I'll tell you that too. Okay? Here's what I know. To every person I talk to that brings up that term and they bring it up with me, are you guys Bible bangers? <laughs> I tell that, I go, so when we preach the Bible and we actually believe what it says, is that what you mean? And you always get a odd response because they need like, are you shoving it down my throat? No, I can't shove it. I can't change you. The new birth is a work of God. Jesus is exposing Nicodemus to truth and aims to change his heart. God changes lives. It's his thing, not mine. So I don't have to beg you to come forward, beg you to pray to trust Christ. God is at work in your heart. His word has been spoken. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17 says, and hearing by the word of God. So let that truth continue to pound on your heart. And Jeremiah says, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Who changes hearts? You don't. You're not a Christian because, oh, I got it, and other people didn't. No. John 1, 12 says, who are born not of human decision, nor of the will of man, but by God. So that when saving happens, I take no credit for it. None. Because it's all about Jesus. But when he's lifted up, he says, I'll draw all men to myself. I'll change hearts. So I encourage you this, this week, it, even when we sing our closing song, if you don't know Christ, I hope you find it threatening at some level. I hope you find it a message to your heart that's calling you to trust Christ. I hope it shows you the seriousness of your sin when you understand that Christ died in your place on Calvary's cross. It's not a small thing. It's a great thing. It's serious. And the work of Christ is life-changing by the power of God. So, if you're threatened by it, just say, this morning, Jesus, I understand. Like, I get for the first time that I have been into self-salvation like Nicodemus. And I want to trust Christ today. I just want to say, God, I'm a sinner. And I believe, John 3, 16, I believe that your son died on the cross to free me from my sin. Save me. Change me. Don't make me a nut.
But by your grace, by your grace, change me. So that when I sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. There is in my heart a sense of amazement. And when that happens, I sing differently. When I understand the gospel, I sing differently. God help us. God help us. Because every good work is done by you. And Lord, for the heart this morning or hearts that are like Nicodemus, coming, seeking, self-saving, I pray God today they might come to you and say, God, I am a, an inadequate Savior. And I need to be rescued by the work of your Son on the cross who shed his blood for my forgiveness. Oh God, I pray that you will draw some this morning to trust Christ. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, I I want you to sing thoughtfully, thrilled by the grace of God. Father, for the work you do this morning, we simply say thank you because we are undeserving of your invasion into our lives. But we are desperately needy of it as well. So for the glory of Christ, work in this season of closing song. If there is a a need on someone's heart that they have not trusted Christ and they want to just come up and say, Pastor Tim, today I want to trust Christ. Today I want to shed my religious facade and I want to be a sinner saved by amazing grace. God, work that. Someone needs just to come to the altar this morning, God, and just say, God, I have not been thrilled with the gospel. I've been judgmental. I've been legalistic. I've been rough. Change me. Change me. God, do your work. As we sing, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.